Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And this week we are very excited to bring you our second James Bond director, Cam. Who do we have joining us? Yes, we are joined by director Lee Tamahori, who helmed 2002's Die Another Day, as well as other films like Triple X, The Next Level, aka Triple X State of the Union, as mm-hmm. well as The Edge, Once We're Warriors, and more. Yep, I mean, we do primarily focus on Die Another Day, but we do trail off into things like Triple X towards the end of the chat as well. But don't worry, your Die Another Day questions are answered. But Cam, without further ado, let's get to the interview. And joining us now on the show, a director extraordinaire with films like Once We Were Warriors, Triple X, The Next Level, and of course, 2002's Die Another Day. It's Mr. Lee Tamahori. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine, guys. How are you? Living the dream, all the better for seeing you today and having you join us. Um, we're we're big fans of uh, the Triple X series and the James Bond series as well. So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to spy movies because that's what we love to talk about. But uh, yeah, all all the better for having you here, sir. Okay, thanks. Nice to see you guys here as well. Um, well, let, before we get to maybe the the story of James Bond and then the story that led to Triple X, let's maybe get a little bit of the background on you, Lee. The, the the question I like to always start these things off with is, you know, what what inspired you to want to get into filmmaking in the first place? What what calls you to this profession? Well, it was uh, it was serendipitous. It was um, I grew up as a teenager falling in love with film, especially American film, because that's the what we got was a, in New Zealand back in the 60s was a, a diet of British and American films and David Lean to Sam Peckinpah. Mm. But um, I, I became quite fascinated as a teenager um, in what was the films I would see, I, some, especially Westerns. Mm. Some were better than others. In fact, many were terrible and some were brilliant so it took me a while to figure out that people like john ford and and others and uh, were masters at their craft but i had no idea what was going on no internet no no you had to buy, go and buy books from a bookstore to find out what was really happening with film so i started to make a list myself it was kind of an early imdb <laughs> i'd go and see a film and i'd take a note of the the director's name and I'd write that down, and then I'd, get, I'd find out who wrote the thing, and I'd write their name down as well. And I took the producer's name as well. And it took me after a while, cross-referencing, I'd find that writers would, uh, certain writers would be working with the same director, and maybe that was what was responsible for the film being so good. I cut out the producers pretty early because it, it was... Um, you know, Hal Wallace and et cetera, et cetera. They had a huge platform of movies, but they were hiring directors and writers. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I, I, I compiled and cross-referenced this list, so I'd go, oh, there's a film by this guy called John Ford coming up. It's called The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, and it's written by blah, 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 blah. So I'd go and see it based on the um, merits of what I'd seen them do before. It turned out to be a... Uh, an obsession, but, you know. Oh, Roman Polanski's just made Knife in the Water, and um, let's follow him now. Let's see where he's at, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I became obsessed with film, and in, in a country which had no film industry, 
So I was mm-hmm. just a nerd, sort of a uh, video store geek, uh, like Tarantino, perhaps. I started to become a know-all about everything and anyone, everything to do with film. And it was around, uh, this is all around the late 60s, at the time of um, Roman Polanski goes to New York and play, play, makes Rosemary's Baby, etc., etc. So there was an explosion, especially Bonnie and Clyde. The cinema changed for me radically around that point. Bonnie and Clyde and um, Rosemary's Baby came out. That's until the 60s and the 70s, Scorsese and Coppola and the others had yet to arrive. But um, So there's no hope of joining, getting a job in the film industry because it didn't exist. The only things that existed was a government-funded national film unit, mm-hmm. which was very closed shop, and uh, a small smattering of commercial producers, but nothing like the commercials we make these days. They were just branding exercises and small. Uh, anyway, cut a long story short, I got into the 70s, I was in my 20s, in my late 20s, when suddenly the New Zealand Film Commission established a working uh, film environment funded by New Zealand lottery ticket sales or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was in 1977, 78, sorry. But um, prior to that, filmmaking had emerged. What happened is we were piggybacking on the, ba- on the back of the Australian film industry, which saw the merits in having a film culture of its own. So in 1974, the Australians set up their film commissions, and we followed suit two or three years later. And and when that happened, I was just serendipitously uh, in the right place at the right time to walk into an industry knowing nothing at all. And but then most of the people working in it knew nothing anyway. We were all complete novices. We had no established industry. The only technical people that were on a film were the camera assistant the sound recordist, and very few others because filmmaking is very collaborative, but it's not all that technical. It is now, but back then it wasn't. So I walked into um, an environment and I said, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything. And they said, I met the sound recordist who said, well, uh, I'm looking for a boom operator. Um, if you want that job, I'll train you up. But if you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I won't pay you any money. Hmm. And, I'll, and, if, and I'll, I'll train you up. And if you're any good, then I'll start paying you. And if you're no good, then you won't get paid at all. <laughs> I said, that's fine. I'm not being paid now because I'm on the dole. So it was something that like 1976, I was, I was unemployed and on the dole. And, and it's just serendipitous, as I say. Long story short, again, um, I've been operating for four years. And doing every film that came along because there was only one or two films made a year in New Zealand at that stage, right up until the 1980s. And um, then I had a very fortuitous piece of luck, I think, because of my blathering on about I was unique amongst all the people working in film because I knew a lot about filmmaking and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I'd done all my research, juvenile research, but I knew who all these players were. So I knew scenes and instances, and I could quote chapter and verse from any picture that came out. And Marlon Brando, this, and you know, about this actor, whatever. 
And um, one of the directors I was working with, he overheard me, and we started having a good chat about film. He was a film obsessive as well. His name was Jeff Murphy, and he'd made a few handful of excellent New Zealand films back in the 80s. And Anyway, he, he said, look, um, I'm making this film called Utu, which is about Māori um, land wars during the 19th century, the confiscation of Māori land and the, the uprisings associated with it. I said, what are you offering me? I says, I want you to be the first assistant director. I said, well, I need to know about that. I'm a boom operator. I'm a boom operator. Hmm. He said, well, you tell me someone else that's, that, I, that can do it, and I'll hire them. Tell me someone that's better than you. What he meant was that we had no trained professional assistant directors, production managers. Um, we were all bringing them in from Australia and from Britain. And we needed to get our own crews up and running. So I'd been around for four years, but boomer pointing, I'd been around watching enough about how film is made to, because you're in the front line, the camera assistant, the director, and the assistant director and the boom operator are the four people that are constantly up on the front line mm-hmm. watching what's going on. So I learned how to run a set. And, and uh, I said yes. And uh, suddenly learned how to become an assistant director. Now, it's a quantum leap going from being a boom operator to an assistant director. And it's um, virtually unheard of in other circles, American, British, because back then in the 80s, it was still heavily unionized and regimented Mm. system in Britain, especially, especially in the United States as well. Anyway, so that was a... Once I became an assistant director, I became very good at it and got a lot of work doing that. And uh, my second film was um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Love. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. And um, so I started working as an assistant director and I did a lot of stuff. And I suddenly thought, well, I can I can do what these guys do. I'll stop being an assistant director and I'll become a director. So I, I decided to become a director. And no one would give me a job. I was unemployed. So I thought, geez, I better go back to being an assistant director. I said, no, no, you've got to go forward. Mm-hmm. And started a little bit of hustling and um, got work in uh, the commercial film industry. And uh, in commercials, some commercial production companies took me on and said, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, let you have a go as a director and you either make it or break it. As it turned out, I made it. I became very good at making commercials, and I loved the environment. Best film school in the world. Mm. Uh, and then it came around to Once Were Warriors with my first film, and that's uh, the potted history. Well, it's a, it, it's an interesting one. I was doing some reading on you earlier today and sort of reading about you and, and getting to die another day, which we'll get to in a minute. But I read that you had a little bit of love for spy films sort of growing up, especially sort of the older thrillers. What sort of ones jumped out to you, especially when you were making that list of uh, directors and films when you were younger? Well, of course, the spy genre in the 60s was absolutely... I mean, I was, was the American Western I would fell in love with, and then, of course, the, the Sergio Leone clones, which... Um, but then I, in the 60s, the spy film was was everywhere because of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Nuclear annihilation, Cuban missile crisis, and everything like that. So we were living in almost Armageddon time. And um, 
there was a lot of fear and insecurity in Vietnam was running around, running amok. But I saw um, the spy who came in from the cold. Um, well, prior to that, I'd seen, I'd seen Doctor No, mm-hmm. and um, thought this is this is the start of a of an entirely new genre, which I was unfamiliar with. And the, the very first album I ever bought, thirty three and third RPM album was John Barry's soundtrack to From Russia with Love. Oh, wow. But once I saw one from, from, from Russia with Love, which is a real, it's the best Bond spy film ever. It's a real espionage film. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought the soundtrack was so amazing. I bought it before I'd even bought The Rolling Stones. So, so I, I became quite obsessed with the, the Bond movies. And then once Goldfinger came along, I could see that it had turned a corner and stopped being spy movies and become James Bond movies, not like mm-hmm. larger than life, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, um, along came uh, Marty Ritz, spy who came in from the cold and just blew me away because I thought, this is what I've been looking for. This is a hard edge drama, Richard Burton, how could you fail with that? And it didn't fail, it was phenomenal. And then I, then I started hunting down Everything I call um, what's Michael Caine's first? Um, the Ipcris file. Ipcris file, yeah. Ipcris file and Macintosh Man, etc., etc. You know, the list is endless. And I'd watch them all, even Hitchcock's ones. Hitchcock wasn't really good at the spy movie then. Mm. It was a different approach he'd take. He was into suspense and drama. But I watched them all. It pleases me to hear the Macintosh man get uh, get mentioned. It's not a film that gets thrown around too much anymore. No, that's right, John Huston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great it's a great film. It's, uh, James Mason, uh-huh. I love it. Yeah. So, but I but I after seeing um, what could be done with John Le Carre, it, it proved, you know when when Little Drummer Girl came along and stuff like that. Uh, I I had a, a sort of laser-like focus on on the authenticity of it all. So I'd go to the Bond movies after that just for, for the sheer spectacle because when it moved into the um, into the 70s and they lost Sean Connery, I almost gave up on it. But then I went back and because it had changed from into from spy movies into spectacular action pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, highly but very enjoyable. So we'd go and see those because it had the greatest stunts in the world were being done on Bond movies before anyone else with the legendary stunt of dropping off the uh, spy who loved me, isn't it? Where the guy jumps off with a parachute on his back and it's got the Union Jack on it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I digress. Yes, yes, a great love of spy movies. Well, I'm curious, you know, you reference Le Carre. And, you know, the spy who came in from the cold and the influence it had on you in movies like The Ipcris File. Did you ever, over the course of your career, try to develop or pursue maybe a more hard-edged espionage film? Not really. Um, when, I, when I hit the United States after Once for Warriors, it was the early, that no, was the mid-90s. Yeah. I made um, Mulholland Falls in the spirit of hard-boiled pulp fiction and... Um, that that was another genre I really loved the, the film, film noir and film, but hard boiled um, detective fiction, Raymond Chandler, etc. So that's what I made my first. So, the, but the spy genre 
was di- had, was dying a natural death in the nineties, mm-hmm. along with the um, the bank heist film. Every, everything was dying a natural death as the as VFX took over and dinosaurs roamed the earth and things started to change. The superhero movie started to emerge in the late nineties, and so the whole film game was changing. And those genres, the western, the gangster film. Everything the hard-boiled film noirs were big, becoming very rare and fast. But but, I'd, but I'd, I'd never developed a. I spent a lot of time working on a an assassin film called Shooter, and then someone else ended up making that. But no, I'd like to have got my teeth into it. But, but you got to remember that also in the nineties, spying was uh, espionage per se was kind of on the back burner. You know the um, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Mm-hmm. There was no no um, prisoner exchanges on bridges anymore. Although I I did put we did put one in. Um, we tried to make the most out of the beginning of Die Another Day. We thought we'd, we'd make that as hard edged as possible, even though the rest of it was going to be a you know laser from space movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm quite happy with the the way the, the North Korean bridge swap worked out and um, die another day. Oh, it's a great sequence, great sequence. I think you're leading us in in beautifully to talk about die another day, and I will. I I agree with you. I think the North Korea sequence and even like the torture sequence in, in the titles yeah. is really wonderfully done. It's some of the best spy stuff you've seen from a Bond film for quite some time because like you said post from russia with love they just became more fantastical as they went along like you think of moonraker yeah it's very far away from uh you know cameras behind glass and things like that that we had in from russia with love and funnily enough die another day but the question i had regarding die another day is you know when when was that brought to your attention um when was that project brought to you and how did you get in contact and how was it sort of pitched to you well, it was pitched to me by my agent. He said, rang me up one day and he said, um, would, you like to do, would you like to make a James Bond film? And it took me about three seconds to say yes. Yes, I would, very much. <laughs> he says, I'll get into it for you. And what had happened was that, um, as you're probably aware, the, um, the lawsuit going on between the Broccolis and um, whatever his name is, the Italian mobster or... Um, had taken 10 years out of the build, a dozen years or 10 years out of the Bond franchise, and they were looking to kick it over. And they'd made Goldmine and the others. And um, so the, the franchise had been rebooted. And I was really quite interested in it because it had returned to its roots, even though it said large, spe- spectacular action figures. It had, it had stopped being on. Um, a, a sort of parody of itself and become more serious. And I wanted to be a part of that, as well as being doing a laser from space movie. When I talked to Barbara and Michael, Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli later about it, they said, um, we've always cast, I mean, we've always hired either British directors or Commonwealth directors, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, New Zealanders, Australians, or whatever like that. So they were looking at a short list of people who who could possibly do do this. Would, would be interesting. And who would Roger Donaldson was one another one of my compatriots, another New Zealand director. He was uh, in the running for it as well. 
But in a long story short, I, I they my agent got in touch with them and said I'd be very interested in it. Within twenty-four hours I had a plane ticket. I was flying from New Zealand to London to meet with the broccolis. And uh, I was picked up by a, a private tab, a private car in the Heathrow. It was Eon 1 on the number plates. And I was handed a script in the, by the driver. And I read the script on the way from Heathrow to Eon headquarters. And it was really amazing. It was a great script. I loved it, every aspect of it. It, it had a few problems. But I, I said, so I just went and met them, talked about it said what I'd do differently to make it even more exciting, more thrilling, and what changes we could do, met the writers, et cetera, et cetera. And then I flew back home again. And I guess I was one of a few people who was interviewed for the job. And I got back home and they decided that I was um, the one, the director they'd like to, uh, I guess, from conversations we've had. But that was only the beginning of it because MGM didn't want me to make it. Mm. United Artists didn't. They didn't think I had the experience or the track record, I guess. I mean, if I was them, I wouldn't hire me either. I just made a few movies and they not hire everyone's radar. I wasn't a kind of cult hero. But anyway, so the Broccoli's went in to fight for me, which I'm forever grateful for. They said, no, we want uh, Lee to direct it. And um, MGM said, no, we don't want him to direct it. And it went on and on for months and months, four or five months. They, they fought, for, fought my corner for about five months. Wow. And you've got to remember that they, they own the franchise. They share it 50-50 with United Artists MGM, as it was then. But um, they, they pretty much call the shots. They write the screenplay. They hire James Bond. They do all the casting. And pretty much even the MUA was a rubber stamp exercise for the Broccoli's and Eon Productions because they never lost money on them. They always made money. Mm. So, um, so eventually Barbara and Michael won and I got the job and the rest is history. Did you have any sense as to like what got you the job? Because I know that Barbara Broccoli's talked about really loving Once Were Warriors, but was it something you felt like you pitched in the room or like a suggestion as to how to evolve the Brosnan era? Like, do you have any sense, like, what the connection was? Um, I can't pinpoint exactly, but I um, I, I hit, hit, the, hit their office with um, a great enthusiasm, but not just the enthusiasm of somebody who is keen to make a film, their film on their dime and their... Um, I, I was a huge fan of the franchise, mm-hmm. having seen all of them. And, you know, having my own view on this and that. And I was just, I was very in, interested in the minutiae of the Bond franchise and everything from Rosa Klebb's shoe to, to the jetpack or whatever, all of which I put in the film, as you know. Yeah. Um, but I was more interested in getting back, getting Pierce back to uh, the hard-edged James Bond that, that we'd all loved in Connery and especially in um, From Russia with Love. And um, it was a tricky exercise because I said, look, you know, we've got the ability, and as you, as we spoke about, 
we could do the the I was interested in having him being betrayed, imprisoned in a, in a hellish environment, prisoner swapped, and then um, escaping and and having no allies, and having to find his way back into MI6 um, through clandestine means and uncovering the the reason why he'd been um, double-crossed, betrayed, who betrayed him. So I was trying to get to that level of espionage, who done it, um, unmasked it. Um, my proposals were quite gleefully accepted, except I think that I went too far into the sort of Macintosh man version of things rather than the gentleman. But I was trying to bring it a bit more hard edge. When the new when the new era rolled around after um, um, after Pierce, that's when they got back on track. Hmm. But they were but they were really doing um, they were having to fight the Born Identity and Born franchise. So not fight it, but they compete with the Born franchise, which is why they went back that way rather than do it in Pierce's one. So if it was dying of the day. I had a lot of ideas, which I pitched to them, um, and they were accepted those ideas. Because I've always, I'd found that in my filmmaking in America, which is only about four, four or five movies up to that point, because when I made Once for Warriors, it was a raw, I'd never made a film before, so it was just a raw, hard-edged, social realist piece, prettified up. And um, But by the time I'd made four films in America, I had an inkling of um, what's needed to convince somebody that you could do the job. And that was to explain very lucidly what you thought was wrong with the screenplay or what you think could be, and to have the answers to fix it. Not just to say, I don't think this works and I don't think that works, etc. You best have a, a pack of cards that had good suggestions on them. Some some of them are bad. Some are, I won't say bad, but they're um, not quite acceptable. Some things I think would have worked mar marvelously, but were um, uh, not denied, but uh, passed over because of other reasons which I won't go into. But I think you know, I I guess I just had a lot of good ideas. A lot of which were when I got down with the writers, we put into practice. Well, that was actually going to be my next question. So you, you cued me up beautifully there, Lee, because I read earlier that once you had got the job, they you'd gone in and you'd worked with Wade and Purvis and you know punched up the script and got it to where you wanted it to be. Um, so what were some of those ideas that you injected into the story? Well, um, one of the first things that I did was um, I said... Um, Look, there's there's no ending to this. There's no proper ending to this story. The ending that was written was a. I don't mean to to disrespect Purvis and Wade. I love them both, but we all knew the film was the script was incomplete. Mm -hmm. um, the ending is was a boilerplate Bond uh, villain's lair. It was in another underground bunker somewhere in North Korea, and um, 
he had we had Bond had to access the uh, underground bunker and do the usual stuff, and much like you only live twice. Um, I thought um, we should have a different ending, but I didn't know what it was. I said we needed a different environment for it. So we all agreed that the ending would be different, but we'd, we'd work on it as production. The shooting production date came up. Um, we still haven't solved it, but we let it sit there because all we need to do is change the environment, not the structure of the, the script we was going. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, God, it's hard to remember. Now. I said, one of the things I said to the producers was, would you do mind, because it's a Bond movie, and it's the 40th, 20th Bond movie, 40th anniversary, something like that, 2002. I said, would you mind if I buried a lot of little homages to the other Bond movies in the film? And they said, no, no, that's fine. As long as they don't scream out, look at me, look at me. And I said, no, that's not my intention. They'll just be, they'll be there for fans of the of the franchise. And you don't even know what they are. We can talk about that. And, um, but no, I went into it from the start. Um, the, the surfing sequence was, was in there already. Mm. Um, we just modified that. Um, I just modified that slightly. But the whole opening of the um, with the uh, in North, North Korea or the betrayal of Bond with diamonds, um, I, we just both we all three of us worked on that to, to tighten it up into what it became. I said uh, we need a character that's a classic Bond villain who's not the the character that changes his face, but the guy that get diamonds blown up into his face so he has diamonds embedded in his face so that was my idea to blow up the suitcase of diamonds and have Zhao <laughs> diamonds stood in his face and that, that, that was a um, that was a inspired by um, Mr. what's his name Mr. Steel and Titanium Teeth oh Jaws Jaws yeah it was a, it was a little tip of the hat to that but but as we went through it, I said, you know, the Cuban stuff became, I love my contribution to the Cuban, the Cuban sequence was in there where he gets his face changed. Mm-hmm. But um, I expanded it and um, I thought I'd always loved the Cuban angle because nobody had really explored it. Um, you know, Hitchcock and a few others had done their hit jobs on Cuba. But I thought if we we were going to shoot in Cuba, by the way, but we were, we went and scouted Cuba. We were going to be the first major production to shoot in Cuba. This was two thousand and one. We were in scouting there, and um, I fell in love with the place. It was a magnificent place to shoot this Cuban sequence. But we were, we were informed by MGM's lawyers that under no circumstances would we just consider shooting in Cuba. Because it um, contravened the uh, something with the com- communicating with the enemy act or something like that, Cong- Congress, and the fee would be a, a million, we'd find a million dollars a day. For, so we had to drop <laughs> Cuba. Now. So Cuba was re- re- recreated somewhere else. But um, the, uh, the my major contribution to the Cuban angle was establishing a sleeper agent 
I said, what we're missing from here is the guy, like, I said, we need a character like um, Beckham Faye or whatever his name is from, from Russia with Love. Oh, yeah. Um, the Turkish. Yeah, Karen Bay. Karen Bay, yeah. Always loved that character, even though he's played by an um, American, uh, Spanish, uh, Spanish American actor or something like that. I said, what we need is a character like that. That he needs to, he needs got no assistance. Bond is on his own in Cuba. All he needs is a car and a gun, and he can solve his problems. So we, I created the the character. Of, um, I forget his name now. Um, his Cuban sleeper agent that he activates, and um, so so that so he could get himself a a, a period car and a, and a period revolver so at least he had some something to action with i think i might have come up with the idea of it being on an island too mm. they're all small things you know that was i think it was set on the mainland before and now it's set on a, a remote island and we couldn't find a remote island so there's a, it's a model shot in, in the movie etc 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 but as as things progressed through the film um we started shooting and uh, we still didn't lick the ending, and the the ice palace sequence was it was. I came up with the. We went up to Iceland. We were gonna. Um, there was gonna be a, a, a speeding car sequence. Um, it was in the script. It was written as. I forget now. It was written. It was a. It was a car chase, and it. It did this and it did that. And when we went up to Iceland, we went to this little, um, this well-known uh, glacier, which when the glacier calves or breaks off, the icebergs float around in this big pool. They can't melt and get out to sea because there's only a narrow stream or river going out to the sea. So they stayed floating around in this lake until winter comes along, and then they freeze and freeze up hard. And it looks like a frozen monument valley. And I said to the guys up there, has anyone ever put a car on this ice? And they said, yeah, well, someone made a commercial up here once and put a car on the ice. They said, you just got to check the thickness of the ice and said to take the weight of the cars. I said to um, the producers and the second unit guys, um, Dick Armstrong, I said, what if we staged the whole car chase here on this lake when it's frozen? Which everyone thought was a good idea, because then we could race around and smash into these icebergs and do that. It was a spectacular environment, never been done before. Yeah. The, 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 the beauty of it was the second unit got to shoot it all, and I got to shoot none of it. it was, uh, the dirty little secret of the Bond movies is the director never leaves um, the studio. You stay at Pinewood. And other units go out and shoot all this fabulous stuff everywhere, everywhere else. Um, I'm not saying it's all like that, but it's it's often that's the way. But I didn't mind. It was so exciting just to be able to pull all this stuff together. Um, but um, so another two things I'll talk about that happened during the script, major things that happened while we were, we started shooting. We shot, I think first we shot the beginning of the movie, the Korean stuff. Mm. And it started getting into the rest of it, MI6 and studio stuff like that. 
it occurred to me that um, we had um, the Ice Palace, which was a model, of course, was always was being built on the 007 stage at Pinewood. Mm-hmm. As it was just starting to be built, and it was going to take up the whole interior, and it was just but it but it was just going to be for the interiors, all the interiors of the Ice Palace. Jinx's bedroom, Bond's bedroom, cut through the ice, swim underneath, blah, 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 blah. Find the his, uh, e- evil laboratory, etc., etc. I said to um, the production designer, I said, uh, what would happen, what would it take to finish the car chase inside this ice palace? And he took one look at me and he said, um, well, I'm not sure. I'd have to run some numbers, but I can have them for you by the end of the day. I said, yeah, bring them to me by the end of the day and we'll have a chat about it. And then I said, he came back and um, we both went to see Michael and Barbara. And this is the wonderful thing about Bond movies. I went in there and I said, um, listen, I'd like to see what you think about making a change to the ice palace. And... Um, I said, gave, gave them my idea so we finished their car chase in there because we've got this big set we may as well use it and they said that's a great idea how much will it cost and um, Peter Lamont who's the production designer said well it just so happens I have some figures here and the figures were something like about a, a, in excess of a million pounds less than 1.5 million pounds somewhere in the vicinity of 1.3 1.4 million pounds Additional to to do the engineering to structurally support the weighted speeding cars, and to completely re- redesign the interior. And um, Barbara and Michael both said, um, "That's no problem," or something like that. <laughs> and they said, "We've just got to run it by MGM." And they called up to MGM, and the phone call was about five minutes long. And MGM said, "That sounds great. Let's go." I said, "Only in this type of franchise." Can you come in with a mid-course correction of a million and a half pounds? <laughs> and uh, and the producers just say, yeah, let's go. So we put that into action, and the, and the results are as you can see. But by far the biggest one I made was a mid, other, the other mid-course correction, was we were halfway through the shoot, and it suddenly occurred to me what we needed to do at the end of the movie, which is now what it is, was to take the, um, the villain's lair and go airborne. I said, let's go. I said to Peter Lamont and Barbara and Michael, we, what we need is the, the world's biggest aircraft. And so he has, so the villain has his um, a mobile, mo, everything's mobile there, as you know, as you can see in the film. He has his space laser and his, everything. So he can roam around and destroy everything from, from a great height. But it also enabled us to, to have Lamborghinis and helicopters stashed in the back and everything that falls out, the helicopter falls out. So he came up with all this, and, and to, to Peter Lamont's credit, and let's face it, he did Titanic after all, <laughs> that he was able to do these mid-course corrections um, in, the, in the midst of the, and have a working environment and set. So we restructured the script as we ran. Um, and they were major mid-course corrections, but uh, it's to the, well, to the compliment, to compliment to the, Eon Productions that they can um, make these moves. 
and a hundred and twenty day shoot and and still stay stay on schedule you know? yeah, and you know you mentioned the plane sequence, and die another day really ushers bond into the c g age where you know a lot of action movies were using CG at that point. Was there any apprehension about it? Was there concerns? Was it really challenging? There's a lot of apprehension about it. Yeah. Vic, Vic was of the opinion, and, and rightly so, Vic Armstrong. They, they've, they've never used CGI before, even though they had used it in the, the golden eye era, little touches here and there, but they'd never done full-blown 3G, 3D um, mm. um, VFX. And it wasn't that I was keen on using it either. I was as reluctant as Vic Armstrong. But um, we had written ourselves, I won't say we had written ourselves into a corner, but we had written ourselves into a position where it was an enormous stunt, him coming off the ice glacier and kite surfing his way to... Um, so the obvious CGI is laser from space and all that stuff. That's that's no big deal. But the 3D element mm. was always vexatious to me and to everyone. And we, I kind of convinced everybody that we could pull it off because it was the only way we could do it. Mm. Not the only way, but the, the, the stunt, the live stunt action version of it would have been far too... Expensive and dangerous and everything, you know. To have a uh, a speeding um, ice speed speed speedster fall off a cliff, hang off the edge of a cliff, and a guy crop up a climb up a ice wall, and then in a few seconds fashion himself into a kite surfer and come kite surfing off a wave, you wouldn't be able to create, create the wave for real, etc., etc., etc. Long story short is. I went for the CG option, and it's, it's the weakest part of the film. Mm. It's just because the, the wa volume water water CGI wasn't up to scratch in 2001, and um, nor was the result resolution of the rest of the CGI action. It looks it it looks what like it is. It doesn't looks like it doesn't belong in the picture, and I take full responsibility for that. If I was doing it today, it'd be a no-brainer. You know, it's just uh, you'd never spot it. It'd be a seamlessly well-executed um, stunt. But we avoided. We used a we used a lot of what we call two D anime um, CGI and Bond. You know, rocket engines and space lasers and laser beams cutting from a watch cutting through the ice, etc., etc., etc. But um, Anyway, that's all I'll say about that. Hmm. But now, since then, they've gone on to use CGI um, extensively because it's becoming so seamless. Yeah. And also, in like, in 2000, you know, early 2000s, that's just the competition in the marketplace as well. So it makes sense that Bond, being the big blockbuster franchise, would want to be, you know, going up against things like Spider-Man and all these other movies that are pushing forward. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, looking at digital effects now, you look at, say, something Avatar The Way of Water. They've, ma they've made water completely CG, and it feels completely seamless. So I imagine if you'd done that stunt now, it would look very different. Yeah, we spent, we spent a half a million pounds or upwards of that on um, R&D um, with um, some uh, entity that was um, specifically doing 
we, we, we were working from scratch. You know, the only thing that had been made up to that point is um, Perfect Storm, I think. And even that might have come later. I can't remember which came first, but water was enormously difficult because of the, the, the volume and the movement you had to do. There's a whole lot of physics involved. Uh, it was beyond me, but I knew the, 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 the complications and the difficulties of it. But we spent a lot of money doing R and D and getting it up to a level where we, we could make a wa- make a wave and a three D wave. Well, one person we've neglected to mention so far really is is Pierce, and this is his fourth and final film as as James Bond. Yeah, uh, I I'd done some reading today that he was involved a little bit in sort of helping bring the story along and having had his input and notes on what he wanted from the character and he was always outspoken and wanted more of a gritty bond yeah and i think this film certainly delivers that especially at the start like you said with north korea and being disavowed by him and stuff like that what was your experience like working with pearson and sort of his involvement with the product or the project well he was a seasoned veteran by then and um, i really loved pearson uh, he's a really not what i call one of the more normal actors he has um, he's achieved great success and rightly so, but he doesn't let it go to his head. He's just he's like a lot of um, Welsh, Irish, Scots, um, New Zealanders, sort of a bit self-deprecating and like wake up every morning thankful that you've got this great job to be in. He doesn't um, he doesn't behave badly ever. And he's a great guy. He's very easy, very, very easy to talk to. And we talked a lot about um, the, him wanting to be the gritty of Bond, and he'd been trying to do that on the other three movies. And that was, brings us right back to where we started this conversation about um, spy movies. You know, he really wanted to be that guy, which is why we hatched, hatched the, the opening sequence and worked on it and made it such a... So it's both spectacular in a Bond fashion, but also brutal on him because he's been betrayed and left to die and you know, t- torture regimes and et cetera, et cetera. But um, he he had a, a very good sense of his character and, and who his James Bond was. And so he he would not step outside that. And he, but he, what he wanted to do was to have his role be taken seriously. And even though it, it, Sometimes the franchise is, is at odds with that because of some of the action sequences that are set up. You go, people either go, that's fantastic, or they go, that's ridiculous, or it's implausible. But um, he's very really aware of that. I mean, I I was having so much fun on that film. I remember one day um, we had an upside down car for his um, Aston Martin to be flipped upside down on the ice and sliding along on the ice. And we're in a rig inside a studio with a, with the the ice just rushing around by platoons on, on, a, on a revolving. And it's a, I just cracked up. I started laughing while he was acting. And I, I just couldn't, we had to cut. He said, what are you fucking laughing at? I said, well, I said, I just can't believe I'm here doing this. I've got you upside down on this crazy little rig and we're filming you in a speeding car racing upside down. It's just so, I said, I can't believe it. It's just so, so James Bond. It's ridiculous. I mean, we just like, had a good laugh about it. <laughs> no, he, he took the role very seriously and um, I, I was really, really pleased to work with him. It was a great, great gig. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spyhards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spyhards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sites this week. Catch up now with our November offerings, including reviews of The Bodyguard and Cowboys and Aliens, plus The Debrief, where we reviewed the new James Bond reality show, 007, Road to a Million. Did Eon strike gold this time? Find out. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Well, I would love to talk about another actor actually in the film, Halle Berry, who I kind of have a question a little bit about development because there was so much talk about Jinx getting a spinoff and there's a lot of ground laid in terms of having Michael Madsen as her boss in this movie. At what point in the process was there like serious consideration about spinning this character off? Did that come before you started shooting or was that along the way? No, it came, it came during the shoot. Uh, Jinx, Jinx was not my idea, but Halle Berry was. Mm, okay. And the reason, I'll tell you the reasons why. Um, Jinx was, a, was the obvious female femme fatale and the female lead in the character. And um, they had never cast a major American movie star, actor, in a James Bond film. And I said, well, Halle is, is perfect for the role. And I said, oh, no, but they said the, the reasons they gave me why they'd never cast an American, major American, American actor is that um, they were worried that that said actor, whoever it may be, might overshadow the James Bond, who the actor who was overshadowed James Bond. And I, my argument was, it's impossible to overshadow James Bond. Whoever's playing him, it's all about him. It's why don't we support him with a top-flight actress? And no matter where she comes from, so I set my sights on Halle. Um, because she just looked so fantastic. And I said, uh, and um, so Barbara and Michael agreed. And first they ran it by MGM. MGM were just over the moon about it, so happy because they had an American in the film, uh, an American lead in the film. And so that was uh, the... So Halle came to work and it was marvellous and did all their work and everything. And as we got went more and more through it, the character was, became more fascinating. And um, that's when the spin-off idea started. I think Purvis and Wade came up with it. I'm not sure whether Barbara and Michael, but it was probably Michael and um, Purvis and Wade. I think they came to me during the shoot and said, we're thinking of spinning this off. And it went quite a long way. The film finished and it was released. And um, I read a script, the Jinx script, the Jinx origin script, it was all pretty good and everything. It was a pretty good espionage stuff. It was more modestly blazed than anything else, though. 
Oh, okay. And everybody wants to do modesty blaze. You know, Tarantino wants to do modesty. modesty. He did. It's Kill Bill as modesty blaze. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a good script. But I, I suspect, um, I don't know. Probably there wasn't the financing appetite for it, or but it wasn't Eon's fault or anyone else's, and I wasn't involved in it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I gotta say, like the casting has aged very well because you had Halle Berry before, right before she wins the Oscar. Yeah, she won the Oscar in the middle of the shoot, actually. Yeah, and then you also have Rosamund Pike, who of course has, in the years since, become one of the best actresses in her field. Yeah, she was phenomenal. I think it was her first film, first role ever. Mm-hmm. There was uh, dozens and dozens of um, women um, auditioned for the role. We've auditioned them on film too, shot them on. There were film tests, proper film tests. But Rosamund was just a natural, and she was just so, so natural for the role. It was um, uh, just, it was a no-brainer. She was great to work with, too. But yeah, it was fascinating when you have someone who hasn't been in front of a camera before. They've got to, they've got to learn all the techniques and all the little mannerisms and all the tricks, really. There's a, there's a little bit of symmetry there as well. You look at like it's, it's Rosamund's first feature film, and it's on the scale of a 007 production. <laughs> and and you know it, it's also your fourth film in Hollywood, more or less fourth or fifth film, and you're on this massive scale as well. So you're both kind of learning what this big scale film looks like. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, you should talk about the invisible car because that's interesting. Um, that was my literal next question. It's a it's a much more. Highly controversial. People, people. I don't say people love it, but people tend to want to hate it more than love it. Um, what I would say about the invisible power is that I, I okayed the idea. It was floated to me as a as an idea. How does Bond get out of this situation? And um, I said, an invisible car. I said, but surely that's a bit. How can we take this seriously? A side note to all this is Michael Wilson is a kind of scientific nerd. He has he makes sure that everything that happens in all the Bond movies, as long as he's been associated with it, everything through all the Pierce Brosnan, GoldenEye version, this and everything in my film, that everything that Bond uses, every contraption, has a basis in scientific fact. So the solar array, which is um, concentrated and projected down to like the laser from space, has a basis. In fact, the Russians did some apparently did some uh, experimenting with massive solar arrays in space to try and light up the uh, put sunlight on patches of Soviet landscape to grow crops. Mm. That was just a bit of it. The invisible car came from another Soviet, uh, maybe it wasn't Soviet. Anyway, it came from another Cold War um, program, might have been Skunk Works or something, um, in that it was called Adaptive Camouflage, as it is in the movie. And um, it relies on a series of cameras um, pointing, pointing around, say, a tank sits in a field, and a series of array cameras look at the hedgerows and fields and, and trees and projects them back to the viewer. So you don't see the object you're looking for 
because it's camouflaged by an array system. So that was all that was based on. But it got such a drubbing because, you know, because it's an invisible car. And it was my idea to bring it out on the flat car in the underground tube station. So you bring out a flat car with nothing on it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good touch. It was and, a good touch. And, yeah, but but I, I was very fond of it. It's, it's, it sits up there with the pantheon of outrageous Bond, like Caper, invisible car. And it was kind of critical at the end in the Ice Palace anyway, so... Yeah, it's it, it's funny you you said the you you said the word controversial and that it's controversial to some Bond fans. I can speak to fourteen uh, year old Scott who saw this film in theaters and uh, he loved the the van the vanish. So I, I it worked for me at that age at least. Oh, uh, great! You had you had me sold. Hey, should we talk about some of the homages in the film? Please, yeah, this was the uh, 40th anniversary film, and I was going to ask about that because you have so many different elements. You mentioned the Rosa Club shoe earlier. Yeah, it was my idea to, to have um, to bring John Cleese into the. No, John Cleese. They said, "What about John Cleese's M?" I said, "That's a fabulous idea." So, uh, but it was my idea to have him working in a workshop. Let me just take a step backwards. It was very tricky when I floated the idea of having a, a workshop full of old Bond gadgets, mm. familiar to those of the franchise, um, because we all knew that they came from different actors playing different Bond, Connery, et cetera, et cetera, four different James Bonds. And they couldn't all use, they couldn't all reference the same gadgets because it wasn't in their film. Mm -hmm. But we decided to not, we decided to do it, and I still think it's a good idea, because and just leave them as an aside, just they're, they're there on view, for people, those who know. So it was very important that John Cleese didn't say, remember when I gave you this, or remember when we used this, or something. And it was so, and it was Pierce's idea to, to ruminate through them and, just be fingering the objects, Rose Klebb's shoe, the jet pack, and other things like that. And do these things still work, he could say, rather than I remember using this. Or... So it was just a little aside, but um, I loved that sequence. Was there any ideas or like props that you would have liked to have done that just didn't work out for that anniversary movie? No, we had, we had to rebuild the jet pack, but the Rose Klebb's shoes were the genuine article. Michael got them out of the, the secure James Bond 007 safe. Hmm. And, and, they, and we were all marveling over them, you know, because, you know, they look quite cheap and cheerful now, but uh, they're still classic Bond. Oh, yeah. Um, what else could we do? Um, so you'll be aware of the, um, the Halley coming out of the sea, of course, as a direct reference to Dr. No. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. Him, Bond being filmed in his home to hotel room having a tryst by Hong Kong agents is straight from, from Russell with Love. Uh, what else is there? Um, oh, there's a musical cue right at the end, the very end of the film when the helicopters, helicopters safely Bond and Jinx are having a tryst in a, in a Shaolin temple or something. And... Um, and uh, the helicopter swoops around and finds the, the little cottage that they're in and all that. That's um, 
You only lived twice. I got the composer to revamp. You only lived the soundtrack from you only lived twice. But he wouldn't actually revamp it because it's not fair on John Barry, not fair on him either to completely just revamp it. So we re retuned it so that it sounds the same, but it's different. Right. I don't think I ever picked up on that one. Actually, that one that went by me completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else was there? There's several others. I think just, I'll remember as we go on. There's the book, the James Bond yeah. you know, bird book that he pulls out at one point. On, ornithologist, yeah. 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 There's something about the watch, too. Um, Doesn't he say, like, this is your 20th watch or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because they, they watch. the special effects guys were dead against having the watch because they thought it was a cheap trick. But, uh, but you needed something to cut through the ice. Um, and it did go back to the... Um, from Russia with love aspect of the the rot sequence. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Red Grant, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think of like any other homages in there. there. There are definitely a few more, but I think it's just escaping me at this. Yeah. P- people are listening and screaming at us right now that we're all forgetting <laughs> it collectively. Yeah. You know, I would love to know, you know, your thoughts on this movie's released in the year of The Born Identity, Triple X, you know, Die Another Day. There's a new Austin Powers movie this year. Yeah. Did you feel like aware during the production that this was going to be like kind of a big year for spy movie? Like there was a lot of competition or was it something more spoken about after the fact where people look back at the kind of Bourne versus Bond thing? No, on the, on the contrary, I, um, Barbara and Michael and I went to see um, the Bourne, what's the first one? The Bourne Identity. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We went to see the first Bourne movie while we were in the middle of shooting. And I rather flippantly said, I think you guys have got to have some stiff competition. You know, you're going to, you're going to have to rethink this franchise a little. I just said it as an aside. And Michael sort of went, hum, 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 I don't know. I think what we all knew, though, was that something new had come down the wire. That um, I, I was especially happy to see... Um, Good old hard hard edge Soviet era, hard hard nosed um, spy genre stuff come back and mm-hmm. the Bourne franchise. The Bourne franchise is legendary now. It's, um, I still I still tap into the Paul, Paul Green her Greengrass versions. I watch them all; they're all so good. Oh yeah, uh, we knew we all knew that something new was was happening under them. And Triple X, of course, was a Direct steal from the Bond franchise, but an American uh, environment. Um, so we all know what the history of it is. Huh? But um, once the film came out and, and done its business and done its work, the, the second Bond movie came out not too far later. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's when there's no doubt that, um, and I wasn't around then, but there's no doubt that Barbara and Michael saw the writing on the wall and the reboot that came along after that was an obvious thing to do for the franchise, I think. I think it definitely went in the right direction from there on in. But I think one thing I I just wanted to celebrate about Die Another Day, before we maybe move on in a little bit to maybe Triple X 2, is we haven't really mentioned Toby Stevens' Gustav Grave or the fantastic fencing sequence, which I think, apart from North Korea, is my other favorite part of the film. Uh, I think it's a really well-structured fight sequence, and it's very visceral and real, which is what you were trying to tap into. 
Well, that was that was a combination of um, Persbury, Purvis and Wade and myself. The sequence as written was just a fencing sequence. There was no, there was no fencing instructor, no Madonna as fencing instructor. It was just a fencing sequence with um, Rosamund Pike and, um, and no, 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 sorry, with Gustav Graves and um, Bond. I said, shouldn't we up the ante on this? Shouldn't we have a gentleman's fencing sequence? I said, it doesn't go far enough. What we need to do is to get Gustav Graves enraged by Bond. And so he ups the ante and goes from, from, uh, from a fencing foil to, a, I think it's a sabre, I think, isn't it? Goes mm-hmm. to a sabre. And then we go from sabres to broadswords. And so, so it just kept moving up a notch all the time. So we, we, we all agreed it was a good idea, and then we just plotted our way through it. And, uh, and then it was, my, it was my idea because it, um, Barbara and Michael said Madonna was interested in playing a part in the movie. She said, what do you think about that? We don't, you don't have to have her if you don't want to. It doesn't, it's entirely up to you. And I said, that would be a good idea, but we'd have to create a role for her. I said, what would that be? And I said, I said, well, what about we create the role of a dominatrix fencing instructor? <laughs> She'll like that. And she did indeed like that. And she brought her own costume along too for it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Didn't know that. Well, the top, the bottom, bottom half of it was all her and the top half was us. Yeah, I, I really like the fencing scene. It's, it's, it's really good. It's just a matter of working it out piece by piece and, and it just goes, it goes on and on and on and on. It's, it's good. I'm glad you liked it. I did too. Oh yeah, it's a one of the biggest highlights of the movie for sure. I've gone back to it many times on YouTube, even. Well, good. So bouncing off of the the fencing sequence, we haven't really spoken about Gustav Graves too much. We mentioned Rosamund Pike's Miranda Frost, but the big villain of the film is, yeah. uh, you know, is Gustav Graves, and very much like a, a dark mirror for Bond in a lot of ways. He 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 styles himself as as a bond guy but a, a villain what sort of went into creating uh gustav graves and sort of what were your thoughts on sort of making a good bond villain well it's tricky to remember now um you want to talk about the character or the casting or both well a, a bit of both i mean how did toby stevens come to the project and and you know how was that sort of character brought around well um to talk about the character the character was always i mean it, it was a, a tough sell but i think we got away with it the same face-changing aspect of one actor replaces another. You had to believe that um, this strange process that was going on in Cuba was credible. But these days we know that we can do it with prosthetic makeup or you can actually change your face. You can re-sculpt your face and turn it into anything you like. Um, but um, the character was... Always, pretty much what was written on the page is what I. I didn't change him much at all. Just um, I didn't have any input into. He was what he was. He was a Korean villain who goes and survives a a fall and a hovercraft down a waterfall. Somehow miraculously gets re as you do as you do, <laughs> and um, gets rebirthed as um, Gustav Graves. Uh, yeah, with a Korean father who he, meet, who he meets and kills. But no, the, the casting of Toby Stevens was, a, once again, a 
Toby's, I think he'd done some television, but I don't think he'd done much film. Mm. One of his first, certainly one of his first big roles. He was great. I just loved him immediately from the, from the get-go. Well, I wanted to ask just about the VR sequence. Oh, yeah. Which is something I think people remember from the movie as well. And I was curious, you know, kind of, was that something that was in the script and you arrived? But also, like, was it something of an acknowledgement that Bond had become very popular in video gaming at the time as well? Well, no, it wasn't because of that. It was, uh, but I was well aware. I'd been playing around with gaming in the late nineties when it was when it was all Star Wars and early stuff. And um, by the time it came to two thousand and one, gaming was a big deal. And I knew that uh, the generation that would go and see a Bond movie—that's twenty years ago, twenty-two years ago—was um, into gaming. So I said the VR sequence. We all had a hand in it, in the writing of it. Um, but um, I remember saying to the DP um, that we had to make it, shoot it like a video game. The movements, the fast movements, or moving your cursor around, or uh, in those days, uh, the camera would spin around quickly and have the illusion of a, of a, but not the complete illusion, but it would be far zippier than other elements of the film. If you looked at other elements, they were more glacial or fast tracking shots or aerial shots. Or, but there's this idea that there was guys coming out of every doorway and every roof roof compartment and shooting everywhere and everywhere. It felt, it felt good on the day. We, you know, we, we achieved what we... But uh, the whole VR sequences, I really liked it. I, I, I thought it was great. Well, just sort of beginning to wrap up our chat about Die Another Day before we move on to Triple X 2, you know, for, as a director, you know, you're a massive Bond fan. You've got 19 films in your head coming into this film. You know this franchise. What was sort of the most exciting thing for you as a Bond fan, being the director on this film, actually being able to play with these toys on set? Like, what's your fondest memory from actually being there and, and creating this film? Well, one of my fondest memories was I was shooting on the tank in the back of Pinewood. And Jinx is climbing up into a boat and taking off. We had a 250-horsepower motorboat in the tank at um, Pinewood. And... Um, I'm shooting the main unit there. The second unit's out shooting hovercraft. Someone comes in with a, a visual uh, display unit showing um, an aerial sequence that's just been shot yesterday. Um, and just over there to my right is the model unit with this giant um, model ice glacier face, which we're going to do show collapsing under the death ray from space. And, uh, and I've got my pickup unit, which is running around behind me, doing close-ups of fingers and elements and belt buckles and everything like that. So there was something, I looked around and there was these, oh yeah, and the underwater unit was shooting a piece of, there was something like seven units shooting all at once. And on any given day, and I just turned around and went, my God, this is like, people talk about the biggest train set in the world, and it certainly is. It's just phenomenal. <laughs> And it's just a privilege to have been in that environment. It's a very structured environment, you know. They, the broccolis have done a great job of, because they're 120-day shoots, they're very long. 
but they shoot the ball in 10 hours a day on the button, you know. If you go over 10 hours, you better have a very good reason for doing so. And they only do five, day week, five days a week, so it's a 50-hour week. And uh, that way you can have the weekend off and be with your family and whatever it is you want to do. Keeps everybody on fresh and not exhausted like some shoots do. Yeah, that's very irregular even when you look at blockbuster filmmaking, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose my last question on Die Another Day is kind of the postscript on it, like looking at it holistically as a part of your, your sort of career and your, your filmography. I mean, one thing I always find interesting is looking at the releases of films and how they're received by the fans. I saw some photos of you today at the at the Royal premiere. I think with the queen was there and I think that must've been okay. quite an experience for you as well. Yeah. Well, it was, I met, I met the queen. Uh, I was standing next to Madonna and here comes the queen. I go, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, she comes up and, um, um, oh, who was the second Bond? George Lazenby? Roger Moore. No, sorry. No, no I forget about George. George. Um, the third Bond, Roger. Roger, yeah. So so Roger was there. George Lazenby was there, believe it or not. I was, um, Pierce was there. And um, Bond number five. Timothy Dalton? Timothy Dalton was there. Everyone was there except Sean Connery. And I won't go into the reasons for that because they're quite legendary. But um, so we had four James Bonds and myself. We're all having a chat. <laughs> and we meet the Queen. And and um, Roger is the greatest raconteur. You know, him and Michael Caine are the greatest raconteurs in the world. Roger's telling a story. And everyone's in stitches and laughing away. And then he goes, oh, my God, look out. Here she comes again. The Queen's coming down again to meet, meet us again, as if she's forgotten that she met us in the first place. <laughs> so they, 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 they take her around in a circle. She has minders all around her. And, and so she comes over and starts chatting up Roger again. It's, it's just so funny. But, yeah, Royal Albert Hall was quite, quite, a, quite something. We had um, the Clash were there as well because we used London Calling for the first time. Yeah. That's another first I got in there was um, a bit of source music. They never used source music in a Bond movie. I said, this is screams out for a, a classic Clash track, etc., etc. Well, that's the other homage too, isn't it? The Union Jack parachute. Yeah. Yeah. Call. Yeah. How did I miss that one? Good point. Mm. Um. And then, sort of looking back now, uh, you know, this is this is your spy film. This is the spy film you you've made in your career so far. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it now, looking back on on it, sort of twenty years removed? Well, um, I'm very happy with it. I'm unhappy with the CGI, of course, as I've said, and um, but I'm, I think it holds up well. I mean, I wanted to do. I mean, the the, the, the latest season of bon, proper Bond movies. It was great. I, I really like them because they're hard edge. But I was really happy to be able to do the laser from space James Bond movie. I mean, I really enjoy the spycraft and the um, espionage elements and all the hard edge, but, but it was great, also great to do, you know, you only live once, only, you only live twice, or the spy who loved me, that sort of scale of picture. Mm -hmm. And this one, 
If this one's one of the biggest scales of the normal, in the more in the outrageous bond um, lexicon. Mm-hmm. So um, I look back on it with with immense amount of pride, and uh, I, I love it. I love the little sequence, the little sequences that I just really enjoy. But the whole thing holds together pretty well. Um, I'm very pleased with it. It it gets dated like everything because. If we'd done it today, it'd be CGI. It'd be VFX to hell and back, you know. So there'd be a scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, it is of its time, and um, I think it sits pretty well. It does, it's a good, good one to, for Pierce to go out on as well. I think. Yeah, and you didn't play it safe. You didn't go down the middle of the road. Like you took some bold chances, and that makes yeah. the movie stand out ultimately. Mm. Well, thanks for that. Well, uh, pivoting away from all things 007, a couple of years later, you stumbled onto another spy franchise, and that is Triple X to State of the Union, Triple X the next level, whichever yeah. region you're in. It's had a few different titles. Because um, we look at all spy movies here, not just James Bond. Yeah. So I'm curious to know how Triple X 2 came your way. Well, after the Bond movie, I was suddenly the action director. Uh, and uh, whereas I hadn't really been the action director before, I was doing drama with some action. So suddenly I became a hot action director, and um, I didn't mind that. But I didn't want that to be my um, my calling. Mm-hmm. I like drama. I like film drama, but with some action associated with it. So they sent me the. the do you want to do Triple X two? I'd seen Triple X one, and I liked it. I liked it. It's it's um, cheeky, obvious James Bond references, but it was larger than life, and Vin Diesel was great. Mm-hmm. But of course, Vin wasn't in the second one. There'd been a flash of I don't know what I think it was fees or payments, or he wouldn't do wouldn't do it for three times as much money. I don't know. Don't quote me on this because I just don't know. But Vin was not attached to the sequel. And I remember saying right from the beginning, I said, um, look, I'm, I'd be very happy to do this and work on it because make it better because it was a little rough around the edges. But then I said, I can't convince you, I can't say to you that this will be as successful as the first one because Vince is not, Vinny's not in it and he, he leads the charge in this. And they said, well, we, we, we have to take our chances on that. We think we've got a good replacement. So they had Ice Cube in the wings. And I said, well, that's great. And the more I thought about it, as long as um, Sam Jackson's there and um, he just gets another operative. So I, it came around, I, my thinking came around to it doesn't matter who Triple X is as long as Sam Jackson and the infrastructure is there, it's like the James Bond actors change. It's James Bond, but the actors change. Mm-hmm. So I started, I talked myself into the fact that it doesn't have to be Vin Diesel. It's just, and each, you can have five of these films and there's a different, each time there's a different triple X character. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter what ethnicity it is or anything like that. So once I talked myself into that, it became a no-brainer that it was going to be just as successful as the other one because 
everyone would go along with the same thinking that I did. But I think I was wrong. Um, it definitely needed Vin Diesel. That's what people went to see. They loved his character, they loved his attitude. And to replace him was sacrament, it was a sacrilegious. So I think that the, maybe that's why, I don't know why, but the film was not, a, not as successful, obviously, as the first one. But, but Cube did a good job, and um, I think the set pieces were pretty good. I, I, I rewrote a, a lot of them to make them work, and uh, the, hospital, the prison escape was a lot of mine. How to escape from prison. I wanted to be... I know it was outrageous and audacious, but I wanted it to be accurate as much as possible. How does a guy actually get out of prison? Not the final leap onto the helicopter, which is, that's all about timing and all that. But the idea of breaking out of laundry. The, the ending was, um, it was critical to get the attack on the Capitol uh, as accurate as we could. And I wanted someone to play the US president who was a, who you would believe is the U.S. president because I'd seen so many movies where the U.S. president is a, a day player, you know, because the, the the movies, the other movies, are always about someone else, and they get some day player actor, and and you don't recognize who he is, and you see, don't take him seriously as the American president. So, um, I the casting of that, and we rebuilt the whole um, Capitol interior, and it was a huge build. But um, we got it right, and um, I think it worked very well. I'm curious, during like the development and with having Ice Cube on, do you have any any sense of like how extensively they had to rework it to tailor it to Ice Cube sensibilities? No, not really. What we had to do is um, he plays himself, really, mm. a version of himself, because he's not a formally trained actor, but he can make a movie, and he can do a lot of, a lot of class. So he is just he is Ice Cube, and he has, but he has a an attitude, you know, and um, not not unlike Vin Diesel. But Vin Vin was, I said, the difference between the two of them is that Vin was um, a more, little more outrageously comedic, um, whereas Ice Cube was not outrageously comedic. It was more serious and hard edged, and I'm not sure the audience. Took to that. We did a few reshoots where we brightened his character up a little, just so he wasn't so hard edged all the time mm. uh, on a revenge um, motif or something. But I, mean, I, I really enjoyed working with him and his and his, and his cohorts. And um, no, he's he's just different. That's all. What was the? I mean, I imagine budget being one of the bigger differences, but obviously working on the James Bond set with you know the broccolis mgm all those people behind it moving over to i think sony did the triple x films off the top of my head yeah what was that was it a different challenge for you as a director because i imagine you had a very different amount of resources to pull from in terms of you know bringing your vision to screen no it's pretty it's pretty you know they're all they were very very supportive it was actually a, a joe ross company called revolution um, that was a subsidiary, of, not a subsidiary of Sony, but they had the, the releasing deal distributing through Sony. But um, so it was shot 
you know, with an independent crew, a professional crew, should I say, in Canada and um, – no, no, not in Canada, in Baltimore. Mm. Baltimore and uh, – where else was it shot? Not in Canada. I can't remember now. Mostly in Baltimore. Had a good time there. Um, but no, it was the same – it's the same – different – it's different. We worked longer hours, but not much longer. We didn't do 10-hour days. We did 12 sometimes 13 because um what they had what most pictures have and are still to this day have is a release date a year or something in two years in advance and they have to stick to it and uh, sometimes that's a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing but we had to get that out and by a certain date had to be shot by a certain date and it had to be finished by a certain date fully post-production and everything so I had two teams of editors working around the clock on it, which is unusual. I've only ever worked with one editor. But, mm. So yeah, two two teams of editors, both very good, working on different pieces, and then they just seamlessly merge them together. And, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Did you feel more comfortable handling like CG action, kind of learning on Die Another Day and moving into Triple X too? No, not really. I, the, the two of them were very similar in terms of uh, most of the stuff happening in there is, is real action, mm. augmented with, with VFX. The only big 3D VFX sequence was the train yeah. at, mm -hmm. night. It was at night because even back then in 2004 or five, or we did that, it was um, 3D, 3D landscapes are not as sophisticated as they are now, so we decided to shoot the train at night. So you can hide more in the black, mm -hmm. and um, but they did a good job of um, industrial light magic. Did the VFX and they did a great job of it. Um, yeah, we did mostly most of um, Triple X. though was set extensions and um, yeah, as I say, the only full three D is the train and the train coming off a bridge at the end and yeah. all that. The rest of it pretty standard action. Well, speaking of that train sequence, one thing that jumped out to us when we looked at the film a few years ago was the train, the fight in the train. You sort of do like a, almost like a zero G fight at some point where the, the train's losing, like they're in the air a little bit. And it, it jumped out as just a really well choreographed fight scene. And it's nice to see that sort of through line from, say, like the fencing scene and die another day to another great close combat scene that you've got yeah. in triple in x2 but what was it like to sort of deal with action in that in that film like had you grown a bit more as a director by that point when you got to triple x2 yeah i guess so but um i remember the the sequence on the train the fight on the train is owes its um heritage to um from russia of the love fighting in the in the, in the train between um, Connery and um, who's the actor? Uh, Redgrant, uh, played by um, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw, yeah, yeah. So that magnificent fight in that um, sleeping car cubicle and then in the toilet of um, from Russia with Love showed me that you could do a fight in a closed environment of a, a travelling train. So we had a bit more space, but not much, much more. So... I said we just worked it out. That what can he fight with? With what's the handiest things? You know, a pot, a knife, or whatever. Whatever is at hand. They both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun to stage it. But it was, it was to keep it as credible as possible too. Um, you know, it's just a process. 
I wouldn't say I had um, learned anything from the Bond movie. I was just applying different. Uh, since once the Warriors, I've been doing fight sequences and um, trying to make them as authentic as possible, even if they're in outrageous situations. Okay. Well, and I just wanted to quickly ask about because um, I asked about villains in Dying of the Day, but again, you've got a great villain here with Willem Dafoe, great actor. Yeah. What was uh, what was it like to work with Willem and uh, coming up with that uh, rather large performance he has for the villain in the film? <laughs> yeah, well, he was fantastic. He's such a good actor. He works, and he's a really good physical actor. He likes to do his own stunts, not not the not the dangerous stunts, but um, he likes to physically do his own fight fight sequences. He's very he trains really hard for it. And he, he loves it. He loves the physicality of it. And uh yeah, and it was a classic um villain's role, you know, the usurper that um, and I knew that um he'd be the actor that could pull it off, that could pull off the dialogue required for it too. Mm. He's brilliant. I love working with him. He's so versatile. Oh yeah. And you know, you've launched a new triple X here in Ice Cube. Were you hoping potentially to continue? Like, did you think I might do a sequel continuing? Because I've actually gotten to launch a new character here. No, what I thought was um, I would hand the, 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 someone else would come along and do the next film, but they'd do it with a new triple X, as I said before. Mm, I thought yeah. that was my one. Someone else can next one with it. And I thought it would go on. They would, find some other actor and maybe female or whatever something but that never happened yeah now it took them a long time to come back to triple x franchise about 10 years after that until they came back with vin diesel yeah that's right well the last question i've got for triple x2 maybe before i start to wrap us up and 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 uh, let you get on with your daily is you know, you mentioned your sort of favorite moment looking back on Die Another Day was you standing on the set with about seven units rushing around in different places of the world and on set with you there. Transporting that question to Triple X2, is there any fond moments you have from shooting that film that you look back on? The, the tank full of rappers and um, and criminals from the, from the hood driving a tank over a whole lot of parked cars was the <laughs> highlight of my day. And uh, and the tank then blows up the the the, um, the truck with a with a shell, and the stunt guys go flying through the air, and, and, and I'm behind the camera where the stunt guy comes flying towards the camera and leaps down into a safe place, just as the, the car door comes flying inches behind him. I thought, oh my God, the potential for uh, something going wrong here was quite huge, but it looked great on film. I just loved I just loved the whole assault on the US Capitol. It was fantastic. It's got to be surreal when you're just watching these enormous uh, spectacle moments through the viewfinder. Well, when they show, the Special Forces group break into the Capitol, into the um, House of Representatives, mm-hmm. and start shooting everyone inside, I started shooting that. I, mean, was, I put it together editorially. And it was one of the most vicious, brutal exercises I've seen on the film. We had to cut it back. We had to cut it back a lot. Mm. Because even those stunt guys were just falling over, it just had it had an awful, awfully violent, more violent than I'd seen when we were shooting it. Once you cut it, it just looked like a terrible one. And with the events of recent years and the last 20 years of 
this and that and terrorist attacks. We just thought it was just too much. We just pulled it back. Mm-hmm. Funny that, but it happened. No, no. It probably a wise move. And like you said, recent events did sort of reflect that film in a way. Well, let me tell you this. Back on the Bond movie when we were writing the script or tailoring the script, 9-11 happened right while we were sitting in Broccoli's office in Mayfair. And we said, we took the day off and we were just watching it all happen. Mm-hmm. And in our script, at the end of the film, um, Graves and his space laser was laying waste to the city of Seoul in Korea. And buildings were being blown up and crashing down in the script. And we changed tack immediately and just threw that part of the script out and went for another thing so it blows up the DMZ. And um, that's why it isn't a certain But yeah, that's where real life interfered with uh, what we were doing. Hmm. But it was quite shocking. But, yeah. I think that was a, a, a smart pivot. Yeah. Well, last couple of questions I have for you, Lee. First and foremost, and you mentioned it at the top when we were talking, I think maybe before we hit record. But I'm curious to know, obviously, post Triple X2, you said you did a, a couple more Hollywood films and then you've gone to film making more films in New Zealand. What is it you've been working on recently and what have you got coming up? I've spent five years on a film on and off with COVID interfering in the middle of it, um, sure. putting together a film, which I'm very happy with. It was in Toronto and it's going to come out in February and um, general release here and in Australia. I'm not sure where it'll end up in the rest of the world. Some streamer might buy it. or, But it's called The Convert, and it's um, set in 1830 in New Zealand. Very first contact between white Europeans and, um, and vast numbers of Māori. Mm. And it's, known, it's a period known as the Musket Wars, when Māori were introduced to firearms, which they'd never seen before, and they used them to start killing each other because they had lots of old scores to settle. So it's about internecine warfare between Māori tribes and the and the Europeans who are caught in the middle of it. And uh, it's, been a, it's kind of like a... It has an epic feel to it, much like the... Uh, um, it's, uh, I won't say it's a David Lean's type of thing, but it's, it's, it's that scale and scope. It's quite massive. And it's the, the largest film we've ever made or funded in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Happy with it, so it's really, really great. Great performances. 30 to 44 percent of the film is in the Maori language, subtitled, of course. I was, uh, I was just looking it up on IMDb. You've got Guy Pierce in the lead, and there's a there's a small James Bond connection as you've got uh, Lawrence, uh, I may not pronounce his name correctly, but Macquarie. Yeah, yeah, he played Mr. Kill in uh, Dine of the Day. Yeah, did right, you're right. Mm. The, a nice little connective tissue there. He was also uh, the, the, he was one of the key orcs in Lord of the Rings. I didn't know that. Okay. Wow. He might be the lead orc in the assault on um, Helm's Deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just looked him up. There you go. That's a, yeah. a good photo of him there. Great. Well, so that's, that's coming out soon, and you're looking at hopefully getting distribution worldwide at some point so we can all see it. Yeah, hopefully so. Wonderful. And last question I have for you. This is a big question. It's been asked to many, every single person that's been on this show, even James Bond directors have been on previously. John Glenn's answered this question. So you're, you're joining that elite team of people now. It's a very important question. Lee Tamahori, 
what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Spy that came in from the cold. Boom. What a pick. Yeah. That's oh, what sick. a pick. And you were straight off the mark with that there. You had no hesitation. No, I've seen them all. I know. It's the best of them. Yeah. Better than the Epcot file. Better than. Epcot file is very good, but. But um, that's a classic. Yeah, and they're actually both Ipcris and that are 65, I think, aren't they? Like, that's a great year for spy movies. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Lee, and going through the story of Dino the Day and Triple X2 and hearing what you've got coming up. Um, I, I couldn't imagine this day come, but thank you for taking the time to speek with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Hey, guys. Nice to meet you, and nice to know that there's people out here who love the genres as much as I do. Oh, definitely. Definitely. There's many of us out there. Not always, you know, we're good spies, though. We're often quiet. Hiding in the shadows a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you, sir. See you later. Take care of yourself. There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Lee Tamahori. And I want to take this moment to thank him for taking the time to speak with us today and share his stories about his time with 007. And if you like what you heard on this interview, we have a ton of bonus James Bond interviews in our back catalog. Check out people like Julian Glover, Colin Salmon, Denise Richards, all there for you to check out. Mariam Darbo, Robert Davy, the list doesn't end. So make sure you hit subscribe and follow wherever you're listening. But uh, Cam, what did you think? This was a lot of fun. And it's a Bond movie that's very polarizing, which actually to me makes it way more interesting to break down to kind of the granular and the way that Lee took us just through the entire journey of the creative decisions behind everything, whether it was kind of Bond's character journey, like kind of the hard espionage stuff that really appealed to him with the earlier sections of the movie, to things like the invisible car and some of the CG elements of the movie, like the things that maybe people don't necessarily love quite as much in the numbers uh, that uh, maybe the filmmakers would have enjoyed. But to me, like, that's what makes this movie interesting. Like, if we bring someone on to talk about you know, uh, Casino Royale 2006, say Martin Campbell. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'd love to do it, but a lot of it is, tell us how you pulled off the sequence that everyone loves. Like that is a movie that maybe the Bond movie people love the most, whereas something like Die Another Day, there's just so much interesting to talk about because it does have strong opinions on either side of the line. Well, it's, it, I think some of the most interesting and rich texts in any franchise are the ones that are polarizing because a lot of the time the ones that are playing it safe don't get spoken about mm -hmm. um and i i think you know I, i've we've both gone on record about die another day it's a film that both uh entertains and infuriates us at times it really is a game of two halves but there's a lot right and, and also some wrong in that film but what i really loved about this chat was just getting the opportunity to hear it from the man himself you know th this was his baby throughout um he knew what he wanted to do with this film and also yeah you know, he has a pedigree in in spy movies you know he he started the whole conversation by talking about his love of spy movies and the ones he used to watch as a kid and what sort of built up what he was trying to do with this film and that's not something i was aware of going into it like how much love lee had for these classic spy films that i hold near and dear to my heart and one thing i think that still works about dying of the day is that you know that pre-title sequence really going for sort of the grittier side of spy movies which is not something we'd seen much in in bond films since maybe like from russia with love we'd see a bit more of it in the craig era going forward but yeah absolutely fascinating yeah and i mean i could not have been happier 
than when Lee announced that he was you know, someone who really enjoyed the Macintosh man. Yeah. I did not see that coming. And that was one of the greatest moments of this year for me. So to hear that just, oh, pure joy there. And yeah, like it was interesting to hear him talk about like how much he loves like from Russia with love mm-hmm. and movies like the spy who came in from the cold, kind of the harder espionage stuff. And you can see that in the early sections of die another day, whether it is, as you said, the pre-title stuff with bond being tortured, but also like once he gets back and M doesn't trust him mm-hmm. and he has to set out on his own to try to clear his name. And there's a mole in the agency. All that stuff is kind of baked into it. And I like that Lee was very aware he was making kind of a giant space laser movie, mm-hmm. but found ways to work in organically, I think, kind of that harder-edged espionage stuff that he enjoys. Well, if you remove a lot of the, the quips and eyebrow raising of uh, the, this Bond film, particularly at the start, you are basically boiling it down to a, a gritty spy thriller. Mm-hmm. Like, you take you take some of the eccentricities of a Bond film out, and you really have just got that. You, you've got a man trying to clear his name you've got he's like disavowed by his agency it's, it's some sort of classic elements there prisoner exchange really tense yeah yeah on a little bit of a bridge work there and you know like you've got like the when they're in hong kong you've got the people behind the glass that are spying on them lots of classic elements there mm-hmm. yeah um one element i just think i wanted to sort of tip my hat to is and you mentioned the word divisive you said it earlier one of the things that Dying of the Day gets sort of dragged over the coals about is the CG. It's sort of the excess of the film, but the CG being really the bit that, I mean, critics at the time fired shots directly at the CG and people still do it online. It's like the easy go-to low-hanging fruit joke of Dying of the Day is, oh, you know, tsunami surfing. Yeah. And don't worry, we made that joke in our review. We are not afraid of low-hanging fruit, trust me. <laughs> we built this podcast on that. It's all we have, frankly. It's all we can reach because we're so short. Yeah. But um, yeah, but just hearing it from him and, and sort of his perspective on why he was doing it at the time, why he felt he needed to go that way, because some of the scenes they'd written for themselves were just, you couldn't do it practically. So certainly not safely anyway. Um, and I, you know, I, I hadn't really ever appraised it from that perspective, but also you know, him looking back on it now and just saying, you know, if, if he had another chance, maybe he would have done it a bit differently. And I appreciate anyone that can do something and then learn from their mistake and, and, and sort of face up to it. I, I think that takes a, a brave person to do that. Yeah, and I think of that line Tom Hardy says to Joseph Gordon-Levitt in uh, Inception, where he says, dream a little bigger. And the thing was, like, they dreamed pretty big mm-hmm. with the sequences in Die Another Day. And it's being made at a time where, as we talk about in the interview, CG blockbusters are all the rage. Yeah. And Bond has always tried to adapt to the times. So it makes sense to me how that happens. And yeah, as you said, like it's, you know, it's awesome that Lee can look back on the movie and say, you know what, I'm, I'm not thrilled with that. Like I can see that w- this could have been done better. But I said it at the end of the interview, you know, the thing about Die Another Day is they took bold swings with the movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily work for everyone, but you can't look at that movie and just say, oh, they just made a buy the numbers Bond movie. They were trying some really out there things. And for some people... They love it about this movie. There are no shortage of people out there that just absolutely love the craziness of Die Another Day. And then there's others who don't enjoy it very much. But they did not sit down when they were making their, you know, 20th Bond film, their 40th anniversary film, just saying, uh, how do we kind of hit all the beats and move on to the next movie? Yeah, they, they certainly weren't playing it safe. 
which is probably the worst thing you can do when you're making any sorts of film and at all really is play it safe but especially in a in a bond film you really want to try and push the envelope and they thought that cg was the way to do that in 2002 you know hindsight is 2020 and we can look back on it now and say look at all these you know there's litany of mistakes that was made but ultimately they were trying to provide entertainment as best bond could and to celebrate you know 20 films uh, of of james bond or 22 depending on your interpretation and you know it's pierce brosnan's roger moore film mm-hmm. you know it's just just look at it that way but i mean you know we've been blessed over the last few years and you know this year you might even say especially with, with people like denise richards colin salmon uh, julian glover robert davy all coming on the show to share their love about their time working uh, on James Bond and uh, again I'm just blown away that uh, Lee said yes to us and um, I'm so glad that he had the time to spend with us and to take us all through his journey with Dying Another Day. I sincerely hope you all have enjoyed it. I know I have and I'm sure I can speak on behalf of Ken that he has too. Oh yeah this was so much fun and it actually answered a question that I've been wanting to know for a long time which was about that Jinx spinoff. Mm. We all knew it existed. The script has been out there at various times and I'd always heard the script was actually pretty decent, but he was able to really nail down for me when the idea of the Jinx spinoff kicked into gear, because I was unclear whether that was something that started in pre-production of like, hey, we've got Halle Berry, let's set up a spinoff, mm-hmm. versus something that kind of happened organically over the course of production. And he finally you know, was able to tell us that that was something that he did not know going into the project, and it happened over the course of the production, they realized they might have something. So... It may seem like a little revelation, but it was one that I was very thankful to get. I know, and this is, you know, where sort of I again I'm so appreciative that people take the time to speak with us because another one we had this year was Jamie Anderson coming onto the show to talk about his father's Moonraker script. Now for a lot of people they're like, Oh well I've already got Moonraker. Roger Moore was in it. Like why do I need to know about this other script? Well, this is a what if. Yeah. This is what could have quite easily have been Moonraker way before Roger Moore was even doing these films like this is a a fascinating bit of bond history and you know again with the jinx spin-off i'm glad we got to shed a little bit of light that wasn't necessarily there before yeah like to me that is really exciting and uh you know bond movies are so much fun to break down to their core elements but it's those like bond movies that didn't quite happen that maybe like were being built up during the productions of others i'm always interested in diving into that stuff as well and who knows scott we may tackle some similar stories like that in the not too far off future yes watch uh, watch this space but we have more presents for you it is the festive season it is a time of giving cam what do the people have coming up for them next week we are meeting back up with my beloved director sydney j fury helmer of the ipcris file to talk about the 1967 frank sinatra spy thriller the naked runner yes now this may not seem like an easy and obvious pivot from dying of the day to the naked runner but it's a story about fathers and sons it's a story about being abandoned by your country there is a lot of connective tissue between these two films so your mission folks should you choose to accept it is to join us next week as we travel back to 1967 with frank sinatra and take a look at the naked runner
And if you haven't seen the film before, folks, you actually can watch it for free right now on YouTube. Just search in The Naked Runner, The Naked Runner 1967. We will have a link in the show notes when the episode comes out next week. But if you want to get ahead of the game and catch the film in between, just look it up on YouTube. It's all there. There's a there's a 4x3 version, a widescreen version, multiple different ways to get it. We'll even see if we can get a version up on our YouTube channel as well for you to check out. And if you want to help support the show, please consider joining us over on our Patreon page. We have over 50 bonus episodes available for you now with multiple levels of showing your love for SpyHards. So just join us over there on patreon.com slash spyhards. And if you don't already, make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you'll find myself, Cam, and Mr. Lee Tamahori setting up a revival screening of The Macintosh Man.